Sequel Cast 2 and Friends is a part of the HyperX Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to Sierra Quest to Adventure Game is Human, a podcast looking at Sierra Online's uh, graphic adventure games one game at a time. I'm your host, Matt Riley Shergi. With me is Thrasher. Look out, you're being pursued by an evil enchanter. We're talking about King's Quest II, Romancing the Throne. And before we get started, uh, listeners might be wondering, why has it been a few years since we've done an episode? Well, one reason is it's been the COVID-19 pandemic, endemic, whatever you want to call it. Which and I figure is now it. reaching its middle. Uh, yes, it's 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 middle mass uh, season, and um, in addition, it, it's also been I don't know as we both have sort of progressed in our careers, we've just gotten a, a good bit busier. Whether it's um, selling things at conventions or going to meetings or all these exciting things, so I think you know going forward, we'll just have to get in the better habit of doubling up and recording these episodes and have more of these things out there because um it was never our intention to just stop the show it just sort of uh happened and then you look up and two years have gone by <laughs> that that's always the way it is yes uh as uh as the old dennis miller joke went one day you sit down and you have the sausage pizza with the cheese and the crust and then you look up and uh you uh, don't recognize yourself in the mirror I kind of prefer Harry Stephen Keeler's version, which is uh, oh. one one day a man walks down the street and picks up a used toothpick. A decade later, he owns the Empire State Building. Why is that? Yes, all um, food for thought. So King's Quest II, Romancing the Throne, you know, this sequel came out in 1985, and the original King's Quest, which we discussed uh, last time on this program, came out in... Uh, 85 right so or excuse me like 84 so this is something they 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 knew they had a series they wanted to start roberta williams uh is the main designer of, of king's quest the creator of king's quest and that was, this was always a flagship series for sierra online once they started doing these games with the graphics where you could directly control the characters on the screen and uh as with the first game you're moving the character around you're, you're typing in verbs and stuff though you're not using well you can use a mouse to the menu if you want it doesn't really do much in the actual game and um well, i guess i mean there's there's a lot yeah. of like technology that, that that premiered in the king's quest series before it moved down to other games and this certainly this more so than anything we've reviewed there's a whole host of sierra games that essentially look exactly like this one this is a graphical style that they maintained for a few years they did, and you have uh, Mark Crow is one of the artists on this. I'd, I'd like to think he was responsible for the, the title screen. You have something at the time was very impressive, a realistically proportioned King Graham walks across the title screen and waves to you. He does, you know, he does a little bow, and it's a such bow, a, yes. a great animated opening. Like you know, Again, at the time, that would have been mind-blowing to boot up the game, and that's the first thing you see is this wonderful bit of animation. Right. They're not only, you know, the, the part of the size of the, the sprite as it moves along and, and just the timing and, and all that stuff. It's uh, also kind of welcoming you. Welcome back. It's another King's Quest. How are you doing? Right. And so the the title, Romancing the Throne, 
is a spoof on the Michael Douglas film Nobody Remembers Romancing the Stone. Which I think that, that uh, was was the, the uh, Jewel of the Nile the sequel to that? Yes, correct. Oh, yes, that's right. So, um, and it was uh, kind of a, a loose Indiana Jones um, knockoff. Uh, but yeah, Romancing the Throne, as you can see on the cover, a I would say a not great uh, drawing of King Graham looking through three embedded doors, and there's a shiny tower. Uh, when did you first play this game, Thrasher? It actually would have been uh, for for this episode. Really? Um, you hadn't played this one before? Okay. No, well, because I, I was at, at the time when this would have been most accessible to me, I was very much into Space Quest and hmm. uh, and a bit of Quest for Glory. So the King's Quest series kind of passed me by when it was still fresh and new. But, you know, g- going through it now for the podcast, it really makes me wish that at the time when Sierra was re-releasing all of their games and those big fancy collections, I really should have just straight up gotten the King's Quest collection i think i would have really enjoyed it well and that's a perfect segue i think that's when i first started getting to these games in earnest although I, uh, uh as a kid i was like in second grade or something we had all kinds of pirated games at the school computer lab in argentina oh, uh, you know yeah. my first uh sierra game i played was the black cauldron which was uh, uh we're just not covering on here because it's not like a proper quest title that gets in the disney titles which is its own kind of bailiwick but anyhow with with the king's quest to romancing the throne um, I, I had the King's Quest collection where it was in a handsome red box where he had uh, King Graham's profile. There was also a Space Quest collection that was in a matching blue box, I believe, yeah. where he had Roger Wilco's uh, profile. And and this one happened to have King's Quest 1 through 6, and it was meant to be sort of a, a – was kind of value-priced, I suppose, at, at $30 or something. But it, it was meant to tie into, oh, by the way, next year King's Quest 7 comes out. So – yeah, like they were all because they they were all c- complete collections for series that were still producing new games, uh, and so yeah, they 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 a lot of them had something to tease the next game, uh, and like I remember like with the Space Quest box set, all the the tease was simply well we're doing a sixth one, but it's it was in the middle of such a weird like mockumentary thing you could be forgiven for mm. thinking well that's a joke they couldn't possibly do more of these. <laughs> Certainly. I mean, I'm reminded of with Leisure Suit Larry, there is a, a little trailer done. They were going to do a, a one in space that never came out. Yeah, that was, that was at the sun. end of Love for Sale, which I think was the sixth or seventh one. Um, seventh, although the fourth game doesn't exist. But yes, I guess seventh <laughs> if you're going by the numbers on the box, which I think is how you should go by it. Um, yeah, King's Quest II, Romancing the Throne. So, I mean, recall the original King's Quest game is uh or, or i guess as i was a kid playing through these games uh king's quest 3 i can never beat as a kid i really should um beat it for the show and we cover it uh whenever it is and then uh, we're going by the order of how these games were released so i need to dig up that old musty list again but um king's quest 2 i recall really impressing me because it has more of a story more dialogue not nearly as much as the later games would have but i think it has kind of more of a, a sense of of purpose and because in that first game the king is very old, and uh, if you want to be the king, you have to find his three items and bring them back to his room. And that really is how all adventure games were for, for years and years. And we covered some of those talking about those um, original uh, group of, what, six or seven high-res adventures, like Adventures in Serenia, Wizard and the Princess, those sort of things. And, and all these games are like, collect 20 items and plop them in a room, and if you have all 20, you'll be called the Grand Master Adventurer, right? 
and and so the original King's Quest was not that much of a, a difference from that. And this one, Romancing the Throne, you have a character with with motivations, not that he wants to um, become a king. You know, basically take advantage of an old guy. Uh, he, in this one, he feels lonely. He wants companionship, which means he wants sex, um, among other things. And uh, he looks in the magic mirror, which is one of the magic items you get from the first game, which I think is a nice touch in the opening cartoon. And he sees a beautiful woman. And given the graphic capabilities, uh, I have to say it was quite likely Mark Crow that he was very good at drawing like close-ups of faces and things in, in the later Space Quest games. And here, it's it's a, a drawing of a woman that looks certainly a hell of a lot better than, say, the princess in Mario Brothers did. I, I need to talk about the, the graphics in this intro because yeah. th- there are some there are some amazing things in this opening for lack of a better term cut scene which still uses the standard graphics of the of the game which i i really do appreciate and it for and it's and one of them is that mirror because king graham gets up off his throne and walks to the mirror and we see his reflection in the mirror yes. and it is animated with him which which is a detail that sometimes I don't see in games today. Mm. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I've 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 seen some more recent games with both modern graphics and retro graphics where you can tell oh, I don't want to render what's on the other side of this mirror. Fuck it. Um, so yeah, we get we get that we get that nice transition where the mirror becomes like a staticky television and then loads the image of the princess. But the other thing that is so great is that Graham is wearing a crown because he's st- he's already the king. This is the king's quest. And when he decides that he knows what he must do, he's on the throne. He takes off his crown and he puts on his adventurer's cap. And that is such a nice little bit of animation that tells you that tells you so much about the character with that one just taking off one hat and putting on another, which also, you know, taking off one hat and putting on another to define your role. I, I really love it. Yeah, it's a bit of, you know, truly visual storytelling. And it's like, guess what, fuckers? He's back <laughs> how he looks in the first game. And he has his hat with the uh, the feather and the cap. And uh, time to go on another adventure. And, and you're not in the land of Daventry. You are in the land of, uh, I think it's Kalima. Kalima. Oh, yeah. yeah. It probably is pronounced Kalima. Um And this is something I did for my research. I found the original game's manual. And, like... There yeah. is some stuff in this game that you don't really have context for. There is, as was traditional at the time, there's a lot more context in the manual, which has some great art and pretty much gives you a whole fairy tale, giving you the background like on on this game. And it also right. and it also like spells out the quest. If you read the manual, you know that the magic mirror has instructed you that you have to find the three keys that open the three doors to the mystic realm where the prison, where the princess, uh, uh, Valenis is being imprisoned. But it also gives you some, some, uh, background on Valenis because she, in just going by what's in the game, she's an arbitrary princess in a tower. But if you read the story, she was actually kidnapped by a witch who put her in the tower for some nefarious purpose. So like there's, there's a bit more going on, and there were a few moments going through this where I'm like, how the heck was I supposed to figure this out? Well, it turns out it's in the manual. No, that's not for everything. And I will certainly talk about those moments where there's no context for what solves one of your problems. 
But the, the manual sure. is a delight. I definitely recommend reading the manual. And something else I want to say about the, the princess, the princess is imprisoned in a tower made of quartz. And that's such a beautiful, flavorful, like, prison for her. That's like something out of Michael Moorcock, where there's just a tower built out of an unusual material. Indeed, you know, it does get the imagination running. Uh, it's worth mentioning in 2009, there is a uh, a remake of King's Quest II done by uh, a company at the time, AGD Interactive, that uh, it had a fan license from Vivendi, who owned the King's Quest license at the time, and it has voice acting from King Graham from the original Josh Mandel. It kind of reworks the script where the monk is a bad guy uh, and changes some puzzles and things. And it also has an original musical number uh, from the uh, the the queen you're trying, or the, the princess you're trying to uh, rescue and so forth. So it... Um, Something about this game that really jumped out to me, you have Al Lowe doing the music, and there's more music pieces. I mean, it's 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 public domain classical music pieces, that are, and you have green sleeves on the title screen like last time for the first game. But it does add a sense of place, and, and sometimes you have like sort of uh, parodies of, of, of music, like the Batman theme or Michael Jackson's thriller. Yeah, yeah that, that's something I, I love. Yeah, there's a, there's a bit where you pass a cave and the Batmobile runs in and out of the cave and it's to a almost but not quite batman theme so it's al Lowe really flexing his musical muscles and and the almost but not quite thriller at the haunted castle those are such nice touches and will foreshadow the outright humor and parody that will become a staple of things like space quest later on oh definitely yeah al Lowe, something that i thought was great because this was exceptionally rare at the time, uh, is that before the game begins, you get the full credits of everyone who worked on the game. Great point. Yeah, you often don't see that in games today, or if you do, it's at the very end in a, a credit thing that you have to beat the game, which most people, frankly, don't, you know, let's be real, don't beat games, because uh, either they don't have the time or it's too difficult or whatever. So you never get to see who worked on these things. And that, you have the credits right up front. It's kind of... Uh, a peek forward to how they they call these things interactive movies, right? Sort of credits up front. And it, it's just a nice sort of sign of respect to say, hey, here's who worked on this. And, and it also, you know, Sierra was a much more creator-focused game studio. I mean, yes, the, from the most beginning. of these, their yep. franchises were creator-driven, and I love that, that that is showing up. It's not just the Ken and Roberta Williams show. Like, the, these other creators are getting their due. Um and I also just love that some of the people are credited for game logic. I'm sure that's a fancy way of saying programming the game elements. But when I hear game logic, I'm like, oh, these are the motherfuckers responsible for the ridiculous puzzles. But no, I'm pretty sure they're just programmers. Yeah, and um, you something else that's that's nice about it is uh, just like Disney, Sierra was very good about making sure their old catalog was was re-released, not just in kind of those big, you know six games of the series compilations, but also they might do something where, oh, this is King's Quest 1 and 2, and you get a demo for King's Quest 3 in there, or maybe it's King's Quest 2 and Space Quest 3 in this, and do a sampler from all our different series. Or like, oh, this was originally released with multiple big floppies. Now it's re-released on one small floppy. Oh, oh, sure, yeah, that as well. So, I mean, it, it just goes to show... If you wanted to find an older game and you liked the series, they made it not that terribly difficult to do. And it just makes sense. 
because it's, it's stuff that's already made. You do have to put some money into marketing and, and, and printing the disc and stuff, but it, it's sort of easy money right there on the table as opposed to, and, and we see now with uh, a lot of games being digital only now more than ever, the, the, the history of the games are just sort of rapidly disappearing before our eyes, the availability of these things. And you shouldn't have to rely on on piracy to to check these things out. I mean, even today, you can get, you know, all the King's Quest games for uh, not that much money off of, like, goodoldgames.com or Steam. or You know, you can get it legitimately. And I think it, it should be that way for a lot more titles than it is. Yeah, video games more so than any other medium is, like, the only medium that burns da- that burns its bridges as it crosses them. It's so transitory. It's, uh, yeah. Anyhow, I mean, so... It in the world when the game starts, it, it is a sort of looping map like in the original King's Quest. But what's notably different is on the far end there's a bridge, and you can only cross this bridge so many times before it collapses. <laughs> yes, one of the many ways you can get stuck. And the uh, the the girl in the tower is through the door, but uh, cheekily it has hints on the door as to what you need to do to get the key. And there's doors within doors. I think it's like three or four doors inside each other. Yeah, it's three. Yeah, that's that's the thing. That's something that I absolutely love. There's just this magic door in the middle of like all, just on a cliff. Uh, and, you know, it has like a pun. Like it's a clue so vague that it's really not a clue. But yeah, when you yes. unlock the door, your reward is another locked door with a different clue, which sure. I kind of found delightful. But I was wondering, well, how far is this going to go? Surely there wouldn't be more than three. Now, of course, if you read the manual, you know that there's three doors. So if you read the manual, it's not a shock. But it's it's a fun it's a fun conceit. It's honestly something I may lift the next time I run like a fantasy tabletop game, like nested yes. magic doors. But I remember when I saw the the very first clue is like to find the key, you will surely make a splash. And my immediate thought was, oh, well, when I cross the bridge to leave this area, obviously it's going to break and I'm going to fall into a river. Mm. No, that is not at all the case. Turns out you have to swim under the sea and meet Poseidon. But then there's a whole series of things you have to do before then. (laughs) If you're a shrewd shopper, it's about to be your favorite time of the year. HyperX will be running massive sales for the holiday season. Get up to 50% off some of our most popular products, like the Ultra Comfy Cloud 2 headset, the tough, responsive Alloy Origins mechanical keyboard, and the fan-favorite Quadcast USB microphone. Sales will be going on at all major e-tailers, but be sure to head to HyperX.com and sign up for the newsletter to get the scoop on the biggest deals. Happy holidays from HyperX. Right. I mean, it's sort of the uh, the old joke is right. Guest with this developer is smoking puzzle. Uh, it, it's it, it's 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 very lateral thinking in a way. And and yet it, it does continue the sort of if you mentioned, you know, Space Quest was science fiction. If Quest for Glory was like um, high fantasy, like Dungeons and Dragons sort of stuff. King's Quest is is in the realm of fairy tales, which uh, I like. And, and there's there's yes. a lot of like puzzles where if you know some old fairy tales you you kind of get the thrust of what you're supposed to do and that's even mentioned in the manual study the ancient lores whether they're talking about reading a lot of Grimm's fairy tales and folk tales but and and here though you have like uh bram stoker's dracula oh yeah that was even a thing because i'm like like when like when when you figure out you can wear the cloak and the ruby ring in my notes i put a joke like i guess i'm disguised as dracula now not knowing that Dracula is ah. going to show up later. 
And then, yes. of course, it, Dracula does, in fact, show up later, and that's why you're able to enter the spooky castle. Everyone thinks you're Dracula. <laughs> sure. And you, um, you know, you do have the witch. You do. I mean, something this game does that that is an ease of use thing, which is, is welcome. In, the, in that original King's Quest, you're walking around and you might hear the music. Do, 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 do. And, oh, no, it's a monster. I need to leave. Otherwise, he's going to kill me. But here, it does give you a heads up with the text screen, with the, the little text prompt going like, uh-oh, there's this dangerous witch. You better leave. You better uh, find some safety. Or, or there's a wolf in the bed or, or whatever it is. It gives you a heads up saying like, hey, yo, get out of here, which is well, uh, appreciated. So this is this is one of those things where th- th- it doesn't quite work for me. And, and we have, I believe we had one of these in the previous King's Quest but it happens here where like you and you and grandma's cottage is like the main example where like you go into the cottage. Oh, no, a wolf disguised as grandma's here. You better escape. And this really neatly animated wolf monster comes out and you leave. Then you just walk right back in and it's the real grandma. And and I, and I kept thinking like, well, this is something you would only do back then where you leave and just go back and everything's fine in a modern game you would have to do something to deal with that monster to get the monster out of the house. And I kind of wish that you did something to get the wolf out of the house. It feels, it doesn't feel rewarding that the solution is the puzzle is we'll just leave and come back. Yeah, it's not, it's more, you know, truly based on randomization and, and luck as opposed to, to skill, which is, um, too bad although it's it's sort of a it was sort of amused by if you give the the grandma what she wants then she's like oh uh, please i have a treasure for you under my bed go and get it well what's nuts is the treasure under her bed is the dark cape and the ruby ring that lets you be disguised as dracula which makes me wonder like all all in my head it's one of those things where i'm sure there isn't really a narrative justification for this but my head builds a narrative that the wolf is a master of disguise and one of his disguises is dracula right or maybe she was maybe she was one of dracula's former uh brides (laughs) is is what i and and she's now very old but she she has kept uh one of his uh capes and rings and stuff that she nicked it's one of those many years ago things where like something underdeveloped can actually be an asset and something else i gotta say with like the characterful animation red riding hood is one of the characters and after you give after you return the basket of goodies to red riding hood she does this like skipping prancing animation which is absolutely charming it's very cute and there's also some of the the pc speaker going like is this kind of maybe she's whistling to herself or or something but it's a nice little touch and it's something you don't really expect because in the first game quite a lot of the characters were were static and you're supposed to give them items and then you give them the item and oh you get the point you get another item in uh return but because you you have more of a an art staff uh and and more of these custom one-off animations it really helps make the world feel uh, more alive something else uh that i like because we we we've already talked about the music that mix of song parody and and public domain music but something else that i that I was mostly successful was the use of like sound effects. And like one of the Mm. first thing that struck me is once gameplay begins, once you, you start on the shore of the land of of, uh, Kalima, there's a wave crashing sound and it's just like staticky blips and bloops. 
but all together yeah. it truly sounds like a wave crashing it really is atmospheric here you go that's uh that's yeah, really likewise neat. when you rescue the bird from the witch's cave and the bird starts to sing like it sounds like they've approximated a real bird call with with these these bleeps and bloops Right, and I like it. Uh, another thing with this this game is you have different buildings you go into, and they all have a better sense of architecture, I think, than than the first one. It's like the 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 church that the monk is at, it has kind of that New Mexico uh, stucco look to it with the the roots and everything. And Dracula's castle looks like a castle, and it it, it you just there's more of a variety of places you can go to to say nothing of. You know, when you have like a magic lamp and you have to, you know, go to a fly up somewhere, it it just oh. it, this feels like a bigger world than that first one. Oh, absolutely. Oh, and a bit of humor. Apparently, one of the re-releases of King's Quest Two came with a novelization of the game, and the novelization also served as a hint guide because you know the solutions to all the puzzles are in there. But also, the novelization, if you're on the map for Kolima. If you go far enough in one direction, you just loop back coming from the other direction. So, you know, yep. if you go through the absolute north boundary of the map, you'll just start coming up through the equivalent south boundary. Um, in the novelization, that's actually referenced that the land is magical and folds in on itself. Mm, right. Uh, and, and some of these themes in this game you see she brings back in later games at like King's Quest Six, Like you have the business with the genie and the lamp and, you know, kind of continuing these classic. Uh, even there's Aladdin stuff and... Uh, the, oh, with that uh, lamp, whenever you summon the, the genie, there's this beautiful Arabesque tune that plays. Yes. So, it, and while it does do the public domain, just like we mentioned, it does also immediately add color to the scenes, and it's, you know, the same kind of music, uh, public domain music you would hear in, like, Looney Tunes when these sort of um, tropes pop up. So that's always very nice. So you do have alternate solutions to some of the puzzles as well and and one that comes to mind is with the genie i think it's when you're getting into the second door maybe you uh rub the lamp and and you get a uh a magic carpet right so oh, yep, you yep. do the ma- you do the magic carpet you you go way up uh to this kind of specialized kind of three room area and uh, and there's a snake and uh you rub the the lamp some more and you get a sword and you can use the sword to kill the snake but if you rub the lamp a third time, you get a bridle. And if you use a magic that, bridle. a magic bridle, right? And if you throw that on the snake, which admittedly, I, I don't think is a very logical thing to do, you it turns out the snake in, in, uh, is actually a, a magic horse. Pegasus. Pegasus. And you get, um, what is it? He gives you like a magic sugar cube that you can use to bypass a pretty difficult puzzle outside of Dracula's castle that it's covered with all these thorns and you can get through it manually, but it's extremely annoying. It's, it's one of, yeah. If you, the, the path with the poison brambles around it, if you want to do that manually, it's just the most, it, it's the point of the game where you'd move two pixels to the left, save the game, move two yes. pixels up, save the game and try not to die. But yeah, with the magic sugar cube, you just get to skirt on through. Cause this magic sugar cube makes you immune to bramble poison. And it, but it, yeah, it is one of those things. Why that was one of those moments. Why in the world would I ever think to throw a bridle at a snake? Also, this brings up a sort of a weird storytelling thing. So, 
there is a witch in this game, but she only really shows up like once. And but in the manual, Velenice has been kidnapped by a witch who I guess is that same witch. But when the snake turns back into a horse, the horse explains, well, the evil enchanter, uh, I wouldn't be a steed. So he cursed me and turned me into a uh, into a snake. And then later in the in the final third of the game, just like you get attacked by the wolf, you get attacked by the evil enchanter and all you can do is run away from him. And the whole time I was thinking, well, then I guess the evil enchanter is the villain because he's shown up and done two things now. He's cursed the Pegasus and he's attacked you. Yes. So I guess, like, the whole time I kept waiting for the evil enchanter to turn out to be the power behind everything. But no, it's just sort of there arbitrarily. Yeah, and you're you're hoping for some kind of a big showdown that you eventually get in things like King's Quest V when you fight against the evil um, wizard, right? And and who keeps transforming and stuff in in the castle. You you expect some kind of a big showdown before you you get um, the, uh, the princeless bride, so to speak. And and you don't get that, and it kind of um, it, it, that the manual and that other parts of the game make such a big deal about the enchantress or the witch or whatever. It would have been nice to get some clarification on that. I understand you're not going to get big monologues and all these things just because of where game design is at this time, but that that part is sort of handled so obtusely. I agree is not a great uh, thing. In, in favor of this game. And you mentioned like the hints not being great for the different doors. I mean, one of them is, you know, looking for a stout heart. And that's a hint that you have to kill Dracula with a stake. That's what that was for. I never figured out yes. what that was a reference to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I realize be... you do get a key from there, but yeah, it, that, that, that's what that was meant to be. And, and, but stout heart, I, I, I was thinking maybe it's like, oh, maybe you help this uh, old old person that, that really needs a lot of help and it's a good-hearted person and they give you a key. Is where my mind kind of went with that hint. But it's like, oh, and uh, and if you had never read the book or seen a Dracula movie, would you know to use a stake on a vampire? I don't know. It, it, it It's also a rare thing where the only way to get past a puzzle is to kill something, which the series typically tries to avoid. Yeah, because like because like the ferocious beast guarding the princess is is a lion, and you defeat the lion by feeding the lion a, a, a steamed ham. Mmm, steamed hams. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess I guess they say smoked, uh, but, but I just like saying that it's a steamed ham. You know, you know what it's yes. like. Um, yeah, it, but but at the same time, you are defeating the vampire in a way that is consistent with folklore. Definitely. It's, and the castle does look kind of creepy. It does have the requisite Sierra frustrating stairs to go down. <laughs> although, although yeah, sometimes there was like a yeah. moment where all I could think is, yeah, yeah, stair quest. Also, another bit of atmosphere things. When you when you go down the stairs to enter Dracula's tomb, a little white rat comes out of a, a mouse hole and runs around and goes back in. And then when you leave it comes out from a different mouse hole and runs around and goes back in it. I'm shocked that wasn't a puzzle in its own right somehow, but that was, that was a neat little atmospheric thing. Yeah. This game overall has more, uh, atmospheric things. I may also like, like the puzzle, which I guess it's not much of a puzzle, but you, you go to the church and you see the monk. And if you kneel down next to him to pray, then he, you know, recognizes your piousness and gives you an item. And it's just sort of some 
it's like a visual puzzle, like, oh, I'm going to copy what this guy's doing in this room. But it, it, it struck me as a nice kind of quiet moment that um, I, I wasn't expecting in, 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 in a game where so many of the puzzles are, oh, if you give me something, I'll give you this. Yeah, it, it is neat that, yeah, you're just rewarded for a simple act of piety for and also for you know, finding a unique way to interact with your environment, which is really daring. Uh, like even even today, there's not a lot of games where just interacting with your environment in a casual way will reap some kind of reward. One of the few games I think that did that was the original Mass Effect, where you could just appreciate the view from certain areas and get extra experience points. But um. The other thing that kind of strikes me about that is it's real world religion. It's not some fantasy or folklore religion. This is a, a Christian cross. church. This is a Christian yep. monk. You get a cross. Like that is that is your reward. And the cross does contain a certain amount of holy power. It, it's very grounded in a way. It kind of it kind of reinforces the feel that this is kind of a pastiche of the Middle Ages. And I, I like too. You have the. Um kind of the grim reaper that, that provides passage on the boat to Dracula's castle. I think it make it kind of builds up. That's kind of where the, the final, well, not, not the final set of puzzles in the game, really, but the, the stuff for the last key for the last door are, are building up to it. It kind of, um, you, you see the, the grim reaper, uh, it, it brings to mind, you know, the river sticks. And again, they, they return oh, yeah. to that well in, in King's quest six, but, um, but also, it kind of, it, that, Go on. Oh, well, that part of the game is also just very atmospheric. We've already talked about the music, but like the castle is spooky, the brambles are spooky, the color palette is different. Even even the water that you that you ride across is different colored. It's a toxic river, but they don't explicitly state that until you return. Uh, although I'm sure you know crossing the river on if you try to swim. Which swimming is weirdly inconsistent. I'm sure if you swim in the toxic river, you just die. But like, you have to enter a command to swim in the ocean, but you don't have to enter a command to swim in the lakes. You just cross over into the lakes. Yeah, um, one of the better examples of uh, custom animations in the game, I thought, is so you, you get through all three of the doors, and now you're in. I mean, the colors get very, very weird in that last. Oh, section. we have we have to talk about that because the enchanted yeah. realm through the doors it truly feels otherworldly because of these strange clashing, almost day glow colors where it's all weird examples of like puce and lemon uh, and violet. Like you feel like you've entered a truly alien dimension and the quartz tower looks so good in that environment. It really helps the quartz stand out. The tower looks good. I was thinking of the animation when um, there's a little puzzle with a, a fish and oh, yeah. uh, it's very much a King's Quest sort of puzzle, but you help a little animal and they give you something. But well, it, you help an animal that huge. you yourself endangered. <laughs> uh, uh, yes, right, which is a bit manipulative, uh, bad King Graham. But yeah, you um, the, just the size of the fish surprised me, and you see it kind of twitching on the on the surface, and you feel, or at least I felt bad for it. Like it, it flops like a real fish. It's amazing. Animation. It flops like a real fish. It's a very big fish. It's an animation you never see again. But you do a kind of like. Uh, with the puzzle with Poseidon, you do go in a creature that kind of hops over the surface of the water to get to where you're going. And in the, in this final area, as you've gone through the doors, you really feel like a sense of finality. Like it is building okay. to, oh, this is the end of the game, not the sort of more arbitrary in King's Quest 1. Oh, I've collected the three things. 
also talking about the animation the animation of you riding the fish is great also it's not a generic fish i think it's like it's like a golden no. it's like a pike but it's golden uh if i'm getting my fish anatomy correctly so that's just nice that it's a specific fish and not a generic cartoon fish but there's a there's a bit of animation because when the fish gets you to the shore it just kicks you off its back and you sort of somersault through the air land and do this cartoon head shaking maneuver but then there's this goofy sort of sound effect that goes with that. I hate that sound effect. It is too goofy. It's really annoying and kind of you're building towards the end of the game, which is sort of, I don't know if it is serious, but you feel like some stakes are are, are there. Uh, yeah. No pun intended with the Dracula stuff earlier, but, you know, it, it, it does kind of take away from that moment. Um, it, do you have any thoughts about in the game you get a lot of these items that I guess is jewelry? for uh the uh yeah. the princess and but you don't use them in puzzles really you're just kind of oh this is a brooch this is this this is that well it's, it's all diamond is everything is made of diamonds and sapphires <laughs> that's like you find a yes. lot of bracelets a tiara a bro a brooch yeah and and that's that's something that is mentioned in the manual is that like you want to you want to find these like valuable pieces of jewelry to like make a good like proposal gift you know, sort of like the equivalent mm. when, when really, in all honesty, it should just be you need to find an engagement ring if you're going to have a and uh. I couldn't find any information about this. My assumption was if you didn't have enough of these seemingly arbitrary treasures, she wouldn't want to marry you. Oh, but I could not. I, I could not find enough information on the game's fail states to see if that was the case. So that might not be the case. These bits of jewelry may very well be as arbitrary as they seem. I, I think it's just merely to, get, if you want the maximum score, you have to find all, all, all the jewelry. And, I mean, that would be nice if, yeah. I mean, w- what if that was a puzzle, right, about the the ring? That you have to find these things and then bring them to a dwarf or something to make an engagement ring. And if you have enough things, you get the best ring and you get the best ending. Maybe you get an extra, maybe she kisses you at the end or there's like an extra sentence or something. Like, oh, she's she's never seen anything this impressive before. And it's not even the wedding night or whatever the joke is. Like, it's... Because well, what I found, when I found the first... When I found the first bracelet, my thought was, oh, this will come in later. I Either I will use this to trade for something or bribe a guard or something, or the princess would be like, oh, but my something's, my bracelet was stolen. I can't leave unless it's returned. Because mm. it, it's one of those things where it's so early in the game, I could totally buy you need it for the finale. So if you overlooked it, you're screwed. But yeah, yes. it's, it, it's, it really does seem like an arbitrary waste of time, even if you are a completionist. It's like those, it's like in modern games where there's this arbitrary side quest involving collectibles that I really, really, really don't want to engage with, but it's still there. That's what this feels like. It feels like a horrible bit of modern game design has intruded on this classic game. Oh, but we also need to talk, because like when you get when you get the, you know, the princess, she's happy, she's rescued... This is something that is not in the manual, so I don't know. It's it's prop. It's quite possibly the biggest bit of big, biggest bit of fuck you game or fuck you player game logic is that once you have the once you have the princess, you have to say the magic word home to teleport you and the princess back to the kingdom, a power you do not learn, a power you do not know you have, a thing that is not mentioned in the manual. You're right. Yeah, it is. I mean, it it seems looking back on it now, it seems like a reference to like Wizard of Oz or something. But yeah, how would you know 
that to do. And imagine you, you're spending, let's say you don't have money to, to buy the hint guide or to call the 1-900 number. So you're spending like months on this game uh, and and you're at the end and it's like, what do I do? What? Do, oh, oh, maybe it has to do with it. You know, you, you start to overthink things. And nope, you just type in home. Although I do got to say, you do get it. You do get a nice fun ending where like you get to see Graham and uh, the Princess Valenice marry each other. But like all of the guests are characters from the game, including the villains and including the dragon from the first game and also including Dracula. Dracula, who you killed, is one of the guests at your wedding. It almost makes yeah, it feel and, like a play right. and all of the actors are coming out to take their bow. No, I think that's a nice moment. And it looks like all the King's Quest 1 characters are on one side of the aisle and the King's Quest 2 characters are on the other side of the aisle, uh, more or less. And it is playing the classic uh, Tchaikovsky Romeo and Juliet theme, which is the, the stereotypical wedding music. Yeah. Oh, but the other thing that I like is that after this, you get like, you know, thank you for playing the game. Ask your retailer about where you can get more or where you can get... Uh, where you can get more, but then it also ends with like a special thank you from all of the creators of the game, and it's all on first names. It's like you've earned the right to be on a first name basis with them. I thought that little sign off is very sweet. Yes, that was a nice touch, and um, I, I think we overlooked that there's an Easter egg in here that's a. Uh, well, I mean, at the very end, it says, you know, please ask your uh, local software uh, shop about King's Quest Three. Which yeah, is to the, err the is human. Be... To really right. foul things up, you need a computer. Yes, we'll uh, talk about that um, on the next episode. Uh, but there's there's also a commercial for Space Quest One baked into the game. Oh yeah, that that's what's there, actually. Here's the deal. There's two because early on in oh. the game, you search a lot of knot holes in trees, and through one of the knot holes, like you see a perplexing message, and it's just text advertising. Uh, King's Quest 3 to air as human and the sci-fi adventure Space Quest, the Sarian encounter. But then later, right around the time you're ready to enter the third act, there's a, like a tree stump or something or a hole in a rock you look in. It's like you see an even more perplexing, uh, perplexing image. And it's just straight up a trailer for Space Quest, the Sarian encounter, you get the theme song, you get the opening title card, you get images of gameplay, you get a description of the game, and like and it plays out through through the theme. It really is amazing. Oh, and I just I I uh, took a took a screen grab, uh, a screen grab of uh, of of the because after you get the first plug, it's like King Graham scratch. Scratches his head in puzzlement at this confusing message. It doesn't appear to be a part of this quest. But when you get the full-on trailer for Space Quest, it's, oh no, this is as bad as it can be. Upon looking into the hole, you believe you see an incredibly blatant plug for another Sierra 3D animated adventure. Hang on! <laughs> like, I, I think that's that's fun. It's like, it's, it's oddly enough, it's a more artful way to include an app promo in your game. I am shocked that it happened so many times. It happened so many times that I actually came to like, the first time. I'm like, okay, that's cute. The third time I'm like, wow, I wish I was playing space quest or the second, second time I wish I was playing space quest the third time. Okay. This is cute. I'm glad they did this. I'm glad that this game is sort of like, it's, it's like how the Warner brothers cartoon characters are also actors who work at Warner brothers. It gave me that same kind of metafictional feeling that I found honestly found rather delightful. I kind of wish other games would do this. 
Well, in the way they kind of take their their end jokes to the extreme with the ending of uh, it'll be a while till we get there, but for the ending of at least you Larry three, oh, really yeah. gets into the the self reflexive thing, and it's um the I think one of the funnier examples of this is uh, again this will be way down the line is uh, in Quest for Glory four Shadows of Darkness, you click the uh, Sierra icon to learn about the company. John Reese Davies actually does the ad read. For check out other games from Sierra Online, Cable of Night, <laughs> yeah. Sins of the Fathers, CD-ROM, Spectacular, Murder Mystery from game designer James Jensen. And it's... Uh, <laughs> it's great. Yeah, it is. I mean, they, they really... They were deliberately modeled after... Uh, in, if you look at Ken Williams' um, memoir, which is... Uh, I'll, I'll look it up just one second, but it, um, have you read that one Thrasher? Uh, not to completion. I need to finish it. It's a bit of a wordy title, but certainly worth tracking down. It's called not all fairy tales have happy endings. The rise of fall of Sierra online as told by the ultimate insider, Ken Williams. I mean, he's more than an insider. He was the founder of the company, but yeah. <laughs> so he, it, it, it kind of, it's inside baseball. If you don't know a lot about the company, you might be a bit confused. A lot of it's kind of sort of like business tactics and, and things. And it's, um, but we, we talked to Ken Williams on the show before. Hopefully we'll have him on again at some point. And it is, it, he talks about modeling Sierra after Disney and like Disney was a big inspiration in that you had, I mean, they didn't really do sequels for stuff back then, but you could look at the logo. You could look at something. You could tell this was a Disney product. You could tell it was a quality product. And also that Disney made a lot of movies and a lot of different genres. And Sierra basically did every single genre on the map, whether early on, if it was like stuff like uh, Pac-Man ripoffs and things like that, like arcade games, you could play in your computer at home. Or later, you know, it was like NASCAR racing games or bass fishing games or or uh sports games or adventure games or video games or police games or whatever, right? They did just about everything. And and at the time, you know, if you saw Quest in the title, oh, well, that was definitely a Sierra game. Yes, yeah. I mean, yeah, from a branding perspective, they, it, it's no accident. You're a shrewd shopper. It's about to be your favorite time of the year. HyperX will be running massive sales for the holiday season get up to 50% off some of our most popular products, like the Ultra Comfy Cloud 2 headset, the tough, responsive LOE Origins mechanical keyboard, and the fan-favorite Quadcast USB microphone. Sales will be going on at all major e-tailers, but be sure to head to HyperX.com and sign up to the newsletter to get the scoop on the biggest deals. Happy Holidays from HyperX. And think about the title, King's Quest. Well, he already accomplished... What the King's Quest was in that first game, he became a king. So, what are all these other things? King Jaunts? Well, no, no. He's now he's a king on a quest, so it's a. I see. His quest, quest is not to be the king. I see. He's a king. It's it's the quest that the king is 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 undertaking. <laughs> or is it for King's Quest Three, which we'll talk about next time? Uh-huh. One of the more irritating games I've ever played, but we'll get into that. Oh, and I got to say, so going through the manual. The manual still has that example of a player-drawn adventure map, and it still has ah. pterodactyls overhead. I want those pterodactyls. We're like, what, five episodes in? Yeah. Six episodes in? We still haven't gotten pterodactyls. It's a wonder, around the time when Jurassic Park was popular, uh, Sierra was still going strong then, why we never got a dino quest? You know, I bet I bet they considered doing one. <laughs> Probably. Like the- 
I don't know that if you play as a dinosaur or it could be one of those educational things. Well, you know what it uh, sounds like? It sounds like yeah. one of those kids' games that Al Lowe would do. Because he that's the weird thing about Al Lowe. He would do Leisure Suit Larry, but then he would also do these children's games. <laughs> he contains yes. multitudes. Right, just like the uh, the hot sauce packets at Taco Bell. It's spicy and not spicy. It's uh, <laughs> one of these things. And yeah, I mean, so King's Quest 2, uh, definitely check it out. You can get it on Steam or at good old games at gog.gog.com uh, is where you can oh. get those. Uh, yes. Uh, one one last one final comment I do want to make re- regarding this. So the whole thing, like you must surely make a splash. It's only in hindsight that I realized that was a reference to the movie Splash, which came out I think about a year before this ah, game. Because how, how do you get that key? Mermaid. You romance a mermaid, which is the plot of Splash. Good call. Yes, right. I mean, there is pop culture references in in their games to a degree that, uh, on the one hand, they're fun because it's it's a uh, sense of the time at which it came out on the other hand if you're not familiar with what it's talking about you could possibly come to the wrong conclusion but part of the appeal of adventure games is you get to think and you get stuck on things yes or sometimes hot arcade action like walking downstairs (laughs) without dying it's uh and I think I do, you know I do we think need to some of those, we need to do a yeah. special episode about stair quests. That's what we need to do. Yeah, definitely. I, I talked to the um the one of the designers of stair quest quite a bit on Twitter. That would be a good kind of interview thing to do to him. I pitched to him they should do a sequel to stair quest where you play as a set of stairs that has to climb up a series of humans. <laughs> but that's a bit that's a bit too strange. I'm afraid it's, uh, it's a bit like Mr. Show's long lost sketch rooms the musical. Oh, what's that one? I'm not familiar with it. Oh, it, it was a sketch they kept trying to do where, like, it's it's cats, only instead of being about cats, it's about rooms in a house. But the rooms are literally rooms, so, like, they can't change their orientation on the stage. The farthest they ever got with it is that because they couldn't make it, when the Royal Dutch of Dukes gets kicked out of the theater, the theater has a poster for Rooms the Musical. Now, in the uh, Netflix series uh, with Bob and David, which I'm sure will get a second season any decade now, they do a sketch about the making of Rooms the Musical, which is actually, it's kind of delightful, because in many ways, it is funnier hearing people describe the sketch than actually seeing the sketch. So that's what you get with the sketch where, where the people try to make Rooms the Musical. I see. Um, yeah, I mean, speaking of puzzles, I'm in very early stages of trying to make an, a, a graphic adventure game called nice. uh, called Goofus Night in the Chalice of Dismay, a Schattenfeigling adventure. It's sort <laughs> of a, uh, a Gabriel Knight sort of pastiche. Um, and uh, following a lot of tutorials how to do this stuff. And it's... Uh, it's interesting. You know, I'll learn a lot. I think I'll do maybe like the first few sets of rooms and put it on Steam for free and see what people think of it as a kind of uh, test uh, to, to gauge reaction. Because um, once you list all the things you need for an adventure game, it, it's quite a lot. Puzzles, rooms. Oh, yeah. Puzzles, stories, lots dialogue, of text. <laughs> stories, lots of text. Yeah, of course. I have lots of terrible voiceover in there. I um, the, a the map first that room. Folds in on itself. 
Yes, uh, the first room is uh, Goofus Knight's bedroom. And of course, it has a lot of um, large holes in it. And you have to navigate around the holes just to get to your bed to get an item. Using the, the just, mouse interface. So, You know, it just makes me think of, uh, of the, uh, the adventure game of the Space Bar, where it's a detective story. Yes. And so whenever your detective interviews a potential witness or suspect, you then play a short story about that character that ah, either sort yes. of gives you their background or sets up their alibi. And one of them, they're these two aliens that have a symbiotic relationship. And essentially one is the brains and one is the brawn. And so when you do the one that's the brains, you're basically a head in a jar. So it's all about finding the right commands in the right order to get the lizard alien to do what you want while also getting angrier and angrier. But then when you do the lizard perspective, the whole story is you have to you have to walk through a door. That's the whole quest. You have to figure out how to walk to a door, open it, and walk through it. And it is exactly as simple as it sounds. It is so simple to do that that you will waste time trying to figure out what the twist is. There's no twist. You just get out of bed, open the bedroom door, and walk through. Wow. That's, uh... Talk about minimalism and kind of a joke on the genre. That's pretty good. I always meant oh, to, yeah. uh, I mean, growing up, my computer was so slow, I couldn't play any of these games, but I would uh, obsessively read these reviews over and over again in uh, PC Gamer, Computer Gaming World, all those magazines, and then eventually websites like Happy Puppy and Nuke 3D. Those old websites. Okay, so next time on Sierra Quest, we'll be talking about the, the next chronological um, adventure game, King's Quest 3, to air as human. Which was and controversial. Heir is an heir to the throne, so they're keeping the puns coming. Absolutely, and uh, they use this artwork of the evil wizard over and over again in the re-releases of the King's Quest games. <laughs> so, and it's controversial because I'll, I'll drop this: you don't play as King Graham. So it it, it confused a lot of people, uh, rightfully so. But we'll we'll get into that, and uh, I should. And this also has a remake with graphics and voices and stuff. And that the fan community did that for the first few games is, is really quite something. So there, there you go. It, it, it's a series with legs that we're we're still playing today. Did you play King's Quest Three as a kid? No, like I, I, I. So here, to to my shame, I never played any King's Quest games. The only no, ones I played are no the ones we've done in that, the podcast. I see. Fascinating. Oh, okay. but Shay, should we talk about what we are playing? Ah, uh, yes, that's a good way to, to end this. It's been so long, I can't even remember. Yeah. Um, I was playing, I recently finished uh, the uh, Return of Monkey Island game from Ron Gilbert. So this is the first Monkey Island game he's worked on um, in a major capacity since uh, Monkey Island 2, LeChuck's Revenge. And I, I don't want to spoil it really, but I, I'll say this much. Like, you really owe it to yourself to, if not play the first game... Um, and maybe the, a little bit of the second one. I, I mean, you should probably play both of those, and if not, maybe just watch like a playthrough of it or something. Because while the game has a lot of thoughtful... Um, it has like a built-in summary of like all five or six uh, previous Monkey Island games, whatever, however many they made. 
it, it especially has a lot of callbacks to those first two games. And so you're you're doing yourself a disservice if you don't need those references, but it would really help you to to get into it. And chronologically, uh, I don't want to talk about that aspect either because there's some plot stuff involving that. But suffice it to say, you know, if you like the Monkey Island games, you'll like this one. It has a built-in hint guide built into the game as a physical item. I certainly had to use it a bit, but it, it it's done kind of um, in the style of the old hint books where it gives you kind of a vague hint and then you can keep on doing it. Kind of digging deeper if you want the, the full answer or if you just want a little hint to nudge you in the right direction. So, so there you go. So I've been playing uh, Stellaris, the strategy game. Oh, is that an older one? Well, it came out... Let me see if I can find the initial release date. It was initially released uh, in 2016, but it's very well supported. Uh, it's, it's by uh, Paradox Interactive and Paradox Development Studio, and they are constantly producing updated content for it, tweaking gameplay elements. They release a lot of, like... Uh, they, they do release a lot of... DLC packs that add new planets and new aliens and things, but it's it's a it's a space strategy game. You know, you you have your civilization, you burst out of your solar system, and you are essentially you're playing out 500 years of sci-fi history. Uh, and there is kind of an end game crisis you have to na- prepare for and navigate. But you know, the goal is to have your civilization survive in outer space for those 500 years. And then all the civilizations in the game kind of get a ranking based on how well they did by by different factors. And overall, I find it a very, very fun game. It scratches my sci-fi strategy itch pretty well. You get to do stuff with spaceships. You get to explore planets. You get to develop new technologies, found colonies, um, things like that. There's a lot of different aliens. One thing it does that is really great is that the, the politics... Uh, and your relations with other civilizations are much more detailed and nuanced than in virtually any other sci-fi strategy game I've played. I may have mentioned this before, but it's something I always harp on, that in most sort of, like, games where you're managing a civilization, I find uh, is that if you do any one thing another civilization doesn't like, they will cut all ties with you and declare war on you instantly. And I have played so many games where that happens. That doesn't happen in this game. Uh, in this game, you have like a score that tracks how positive or negative your relationships with another civilization are, and it can go down, it can go up, different things you do in the game can make it go down and up. If you do something with one civilization, it could anger or please a third party that could affect their view of you. Uh, and one of the other things I like is you can purposefully sabotage your relations with another empire. Like, one of the factors of the game is in most cases, you can't arbitrarily declare war on someone. You have to have bad enough relationships. So you can send diplomats and spies to sabotage your relations with other empires in preparation for war. So that part of the game is great. I am now going to tell you the part of the game that is not great. And the more I play, as much as I love this, the more I play this, uh, the more I play Stellaris, the more this grates on me. So, as I said, you're playing... 500 years of history and so you got to get to that 500 years the problem is once your civilization is developed enough and if you've helped make the galaxy a stable enough place at some point it just becomes a waiting game where you're waiting out the clock and you can speed up the amount by which time passes in the game 
you could only speed it up by about 50%. Meaning, at a certain point, huge parts of this game is just sitting and staring at your screen waiting for something to happen. And unlike uh, Ascendancy, uh, the classic uh, space game from the 90s that I really, really love, in, in Ascendancy, that game could also become a waiting game. But where you could control the flow of time, you could just tell the game to skip ahead to the next time an event happens, and it would immediately take you there. Stellaris does not have that option, and it desperately needs that option. Because there is way too much waiting in the second half of the game. Seems like it and almost could is... used a bit more time in the oven or something. That's, that's oh no, it's it's of... had more than enough time in the oven. Like I said, it's a it's it's a complete yeah. game. But if you're competent and make a ba- make a balanced, sustainable civilization in a balanced, sustainable galaxy, you've got nothing to do. And I really wish you could just skip ahead to the next event or failing that skip ahead to the end of the 500 years. Just go straight there. Although one thing I, I will say that is endlessly frustrating is that one of the things this game has is you can have like fallen empires and uh, slumbering empires, which are basically ancient alien civilizations that start the game with all the tech already researched and all their planets 100% developed, but they're isolationist and in a very small corner of the map. Sometimes they can just decide to conquer the galaxy and there's not a goddamn thing you can do about it. If one of those things awakens and you're in their path, you might as well reboot the game and start over because you're going to be wiped Ouch. out. Well, I mean, those kind of now, things. Now, admittedly, not... there are, yeah, there are things you can do to mitigate that. But if you're targeted, fuck it, you're out. Of, you're as good as out of the game. Uh, what were you saying? Oh, um, just th- those kind of your screwed moments are just not uncommon for for those sort of games. It, it is all it, it it unfortunately, and it's uh, that that's the way the cookie crumbles. I, I I was reminded a bit. There was a really good um, remake of Master of Orion done uh, oh. a while back and they got um actors like robert picardo and mark hamill and stuff to voice the different alien races oh that's cool and um and, and yet they keep the mechanics pretty much the the same as the old one i think they polished some stuff they did have a uh, some some new races i think one of which robert england voices the kind of um how do you put it like the you can go to ask them questions or whatever they tell you to do they give you little hints your little uh mentor dude for your race right uh but it's yeah no it's pretty neat um if you like those kind of games i'd recommend that one it uh yeah so anyhow yeah no that's really cool i haven't thought about those kind of games in a while and i found something that'll be a good reference for this show i think i'll send you a link uh so ken williams has an official site called sierragamers.com and on it they have uh, scanned pdfs of most of the official hint guides for their games even the ones that require something to where you have to put glasses over it to see it, they kind of have a pages where you can see what the text says. Oh, so, that's cool. Yeah, so there's these high-quality PDFs of all these things for free. It's a nice little... Um, it's not for every Sierra game, but it's for, for most of them, and the ones published in-house, at least. Oh, that's cool. I'm going to have fun going through this, because some, yeah. some of those... Some of those hint guides are, are just like brilliant experiences in their own. And I won't I won't go into detail, but I love that the hint guide for Space Quest Five describes a completely alternate version of Space Quest Five. 
Right, and um, a lot of the early hint guides are written by Al Lowe, so it has a lot of jokes. Classic and, and puns and things. And and some of these games, they made more money on the hint guides than the games themselves. So, Yeah, that was actually something I was looking into, that in some cases they even sold more copies of the guides than the game. Although I guess at that point people well, couldn't copy so the disc. So, but like, you're, you're making money on both ends. That's great. Yeah, I mean, my, if not you, who else? I mean, you had, I, I was um, interviewing someone about this, this book I have coming up, but uh, he had written hundreds of uh, hint guides in the, the 90s and mentioned, you know, it, it's really kind of a, a strange business where uh, you had both official hint guides and unofficial hint guides. Yeah. And, you'll, and why, you'll sometimes why would get you get unofficial hint guides today? Yeah, you don't see them that much anymore. The the the, the Blizzard uh, Warcraft expansions, like those, tend to get them for maps and things. Um, I mean, the, the worst hint guide was uh, Final Fantasy IX had one where the hint guide was purposefully incomplete, and you go on a website to to see the to fill out the gaps. And oh, of course, the awful. website was taken down a few years later. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. Use the special code to register your login to see the rest of the hints for this guide. You just paid thirty dollars for it. <laughs> Yeah, it's just the worst. So, yeah, so next time on Sierra Quest, this has been fun. Uh, we're going to do King's Quest 3 to Air is Human. Uh, I'm Matt Bradley Shirky. With me is Thrasher. Hello, hello. And, and goodbye, goodbye. Time, yeah, save early, save often.